In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, we are continuing here today our uh, series on repentance and on desert spirituality in general. Um, <clears throat> today will be the last lecture that we have uh, on this subtopic of repentance. And then, God willing, uh, the next time we'll get into uh, a dogmatic topic, and then we'll switch back and forward. Uh, between sort of mini-series there. Um, today, we are going to speak about what the fruits of repentance are and how that specifically relates to uh, the dogmatic truths that uh, we're going to be getting into uh, in just a few weeks. And so we'll get right into it here. When we speak about forgiveness and about repentance, uh, repentance on our part and forgiveness of God towards us, uh, we have to understand that the, the, the greatness of this, why repentance is so important is because it allows for us, for the true repentance, uh, to be wholly aware of, um, of God's love towards, towards him. Uh, and maybe not completely, but certainly more so than, than, than before. Uh, and this is something that we touched on uh, before as well as to why it is that uh, someone who uh, was in a good position before and then fell and repented um, might be more cognizant of of God's love than someone that that hasn't, um, and, and that's not a hard and fast rule, but uh, it certainly carries over and holds true for for many uh, situations. Uh, and so we'll start here with um, a few verses from the first epistle of John, he says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation of our sins. We love because he first loved us. Um, expiation means that Christ's sacrifice cleanses us from sin's pollution and removes the guilt of sin from us. Um, we're not going to be getting into the details of expiation versus propitiation uh, for the sake of this talk, but let's, let's consider it as Christ's act for the forgiveness of our sins. His demonstration of his love for us is in the forgiveness of sins, and we love him because of this. We love him because we recognize um, that the basis of why repentance is important and why it's a continual disposition uh, we have towards God is that he saved us from our sins. Um, and I think maybe that this is not something that is uh, really brought to mind very much, that he's, he is our savior because he saved us from our sins. Uh, I think more often than not, we just think of it in terms of this abstract love, uh, this feeling that he has towards us, even though love is not a feeling, but that's often how we conceptualize it, um, that he just has a disposition towards us. And therefore, we should love him because he generally has this disposition towards us. The beauty and the richness of the incarnation is that we see God's love uh, very apparent to us in the flesh. Uh, and the reasoning for that is so that he would come and forgive us 
uh, of our sins and save us from our sins. Um, and this is why we love him. We love him because he saved us from our sins. We don't love him simply because, you know, he gives us great things and uh, we're very thankful for, for the great blessings that he's bestowed on us. That is part of it. Um, but there is something that is unique to God uh, in what it is that he provides to us that no other being could ever provide. Uh, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. Um, <clears throat> and so that's, that's something that, that uh, we're going to be dwelling on here a bit today as to why it is that uh, the repentance portion of our work, uh, which is guided by the grace of God to even instill that repentance within us, uh, could lead us to uh, different parts of our spiritual life uh, that will eventually lead to uh, a deeper experience and knowledge of God as person. Um, now, this is probably interesting for some people because uh, when we switch to a topic of fear of God, that seems like it's uh, discordant with, with, uh, with what it is that we've been speaking about up till now. Why would you be fearful of uh, someone that, that loves you? Uh, this is uh, an extract of uh, one of the, the letters that are attributed to St. Anthony the Great. There are a total of 20 that are attributed to him. Uh, seven that are uh, probably uh, actually correctly attributed, and then 13 um, that are uh, a little bit more suspect. But one of those uh, speaks about this. And by the way, I would encourage uh, those who have access to it, uh, and it shouldn't be too hard to find. Uh, I know that the Brotherhood here, uh, St. Paul's Brotherhood, actually published the, the letters. I think they, they have the seven um, authentic letters that they've published. Uh, and it's very interesting to read them because if you read them uh, with the correct viewpoint, you will see how it is that St. Anthony in his spiritual life had developed uh, such an experience of God and had received a revelation of that truth that you'll see that the things that are spoken about in On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius uh, are actually uh, alluded to in part in, in the letters by St. Anthony, uh, which makes perfect sense because St. Athanasius was uh, essentially a disciple of, of St. Anthony, uh, at least in part. Uh, and uh, there is a tradition that holds that when St. Athanasius wrote uh, on the Incarnation and he wanted it to be edited and, and seen uh, to see how, 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 how um, effective it would be that he had St. Anthony the Great edit it uh, and advise him on it. And so we'll take from, from one of these epistles here that he wrote. And he says, if a man wishes to attain to love of God, he must have fear of God. Fear gives birth to mourning and mourning to courage. When all this has ripened in the soul, it begins to bear fruit in all things. And seeing this beautiful fruit in the soul, God draws it to himself like choice incense, takes joy in it with his angels for all time, fills it with rejoicing, and protects it in all its ways to let it reach its place of rest 
without harm. When a man wishes to have in himself the light of God and his power, when you wish to have this kind of revelation, when you wish to have this kind of deeper experience with God, um, and to be firm in, in the knowledge of, of, of his love, um, and so disregards both the abuse and the honors of this world, hates all things of the world and ease of the body, and purifies his heart of all bad thoughts. When he unceasingly brings to God fasting and tears day and night, as well as pure prayers, then God enriches him with that power. Uh, so it starts with the fear of God. And we know that, and we're going to be getting into that in the next slide here, we know that from a biblical standpoint as well, that the fear of God is something that is essential uh, in, in, in beginning our road uh, towards God. Uh, I think probably oftentimes the way that it goes is, you know, someone's living a particular way, they sin, they recognize their sin, they want to repent of their sin, and when they start to re-engage in this relationship with, with Christ, um, one of the things that ends up developing is this fear of God. Now, it's not a fear of God of his punishments. Uh, and I think that that, that might be um, where some people are unsettled with this, this concept of there being a fear of God. Uh, but it is a reverential fear of God. Uh, and it's also a fear uh, that's based on love as well. And that's why it's the beginning of love. It's a fear of, of letting the other one down. Um, and it's not that the other one would be let down, right? It's not like uh, you're going to do something that is, is going to disappoint God. Um, it's that within your uh, relationship with him, uh, that experience that you have with him, uh, that is something that you you don't want to break. You want to be able to hold on to this. When you begin to recognize that he is the savior uh, and that he has saved you from your sins and continues to save you from your sins on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, uh, minute by minute, you don't want this relationship to be broken. And so you don't want to do something that's going to jeopardize that. And that is part of the fear um, and so we, we see here in, in, uh, in the Psalms, for example, that David says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? The beginning of this knowledge, not just worldly wisdom. That's not what we're talking about. Um, but wisdom as it is when we speak about it from a biblical standpoint, wisdom, the Greek for it is Sophia. And when we speak about Sophia and we read in the wisdom books, we see that it is referring to Christ. And so Christ is wisdom. And so the beginning of being able to have this experience with Christ is the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> um, one of the, the homilies, homily number 11 of St. Macarius the Great, uh, in it he says, if you see here a good brother, it is grace which has established him. But the man without found foundation has no fear of God. His heart is not contrite. If you see someone that's good, know that what established him to be good is grace. And the man that doesn't have a foundation, a man that is not repentant, a man that is not actually good, not just that he appears good, but not actually partaking in this kind of relationship with, with Christ, uh, 
it's because he has no fear of God. And he relates that fear of God specifically with contrition, uh, with repentance. Repentance and the fear of God go hand in hand with one another. Again, because you don't want to let down the one that you love. Uh, and if you think about the relationships that you have in your life, um, you know, with, 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 with others that are around you, whether it's your spouse or, or uh, others, uh, be, yeah, based on, on the love that you have for them, out of that love, uh, you will do things, some things that uh, you uh, maybe don't have the energy to do or aren't naturally inclined to do, but you'll do those things uh, to make them happy and to not let them down. Um, there's a, sort of a, a healthy fear of, of, of doing things. And this is, again, it's not a cowering fear. It's not um, a fear that, for example, if, if I do something wrong, that uh, my wife is going to throw me out of the house or that she's going to abuse me or something like this. Um, it is a fear of, of uh, having that part of the relationship that has built uh, that has been built out of experience uh, dwindling away for for one reason or another and so it's this constant uh, uh, energy that's being put in uh, again so that you can you can try to respond to the love that has been that has been given um, and as a result of that uh, there's instruction that comes as you, as you continue to grow in that experience with Christ, you learn more about him because you're spending more time with him uh, and you're trying to understand how he thinks. Someone who spends quite a bit of time with someone else, I mean, if, if you're around them for a long period of time and you're invested in knowing who they are, um, at some point it becomes somewhat more predictable for you to be able to say in a given situation, this person would react like this. And, uh, and that is something that is based on experience. It's not something that, you know, if I, if I come and I tell you, you know, this person is very nice, and you just have this sort of abstract concept in your mind that this person is nice. That's one thing. Um, but if I tell you uh, specific examples of why this person's nice, and then you have the experience of seeing how nice this person is, um, and you have particular situations that come up within your life, we now see how kind and gentle this person is, uh, then you know it, right? It's, it's something that is given to you and you begin to understand from an instructive standpoint by, by revelation because it's this experience uh, who this person is and, and, and what they stand for. One of the wonderful desert fathers of a Piman, uh, it says in, in the Paradise of the Fathers that he used to say, the fear of God teaches a man all spiritual excellences. Uh, oftentimes when we read in the Paradise of the Fathers, you'll see that they will speak about that which is in the beginning, leading to that which is uh, not in the end, but much more developed, because there is no end to this, right? There is no end to getting to know God. Uh, but it will teach a man all spiritual excellences. And uh, another desert father, Ava Jacob, he used to say, as a lamp illuminates a dark chamber, so does the fear of God. If it abides in the heart of man, illumine him. It brings light to the man's heart and teaches him all the excellences of the commandments of God. So it's interesting because, you know, if someone wants to 
follow after God and get to know him and, and, and uh, abides by his commandments, which is something that we had spoken about, I, I think, in the, in the first talk in this series. Um, that person might be doing that just because they understand this to be what has been set out for them, but they don't really understand why it's great. Uh, they don't understand even sometimes why the commandment exists. Uh, and, and many times when we, when we see things, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, there are things in there that from an experiential standpoint, if someone were to tell you this, uh, you would not necessarily see what is so valuable to it. Um, and that obviously holds true because when, uh, when most of us are put into situations that test that, uh, we'll fail. Uh, and it's because we don't see uh, the value of it. What, what, is, what is the reasoning behind it? But if someone uh, has this fear of God, if someone wants to develop this relationship, if someone wants to do everything in their power, and from what we saw from St. Anthony the Great's letter, uh, everything in, in, in your power is uh, quite a number of things. Um, and so if we, if we just go back here for just a second, he says that that person disregards both the abuse and the honors of the world, hates all things of the world and ease of the body. And when we say hates, hates all things of the world, uh, we're not talking about you know the, the earth here because the earth that God made is good and the things that he made are good. But we're talking about worldly things, those things that we think of as being secular things that would draw us away from, from God. Um, and this person purifies his heart of all bad thoughts when he unceasingly brings to God, unceasingly brings to God, fasting and tears day and night, as well as pure prayers, then God enriches him with his power. Um, and so this is where the instruction comes from. And this is where we will begin to see that when we have the saints that speak about dogma and doctrine and defend it, the reason why they are so adamant about what it is that they're defending is not because uh, they've philosophized about it or theorized about it and they've put together puzzle pieces and they've said, this must be what God is like. Um, you know, I've read the Bible, I've, I, I read it constantly. Uh, and so I'm trying to, to piece together an image of what God must be like from this. Um, the reason why they're so, even though that in, in part is, is true, and we cannot disregard that, that is an important facet of how it is that one develops that relationship with God, because it is uh, his, his word towards us in this relationship. The reason why they're so adamant and firm in their standpoint uh, is because they actually have an experience of this. So when we begin to see, for example, when we start speaking about Christology uh, and we're speaking about anything concerning Christ, uh, or when we speak about something about the Trinity, how do we know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, and you get into all of these kinds of debates. Well, is this verse originally in the Bible? Is this not in the Bible? And it's referring to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the term Trinity didn't come, et cetera, et cetera, for uh, a couple of centuries and wasn't used. Um, you the reason why they stand on it so firmly is because they've actually experienced the Trinity. Uh, they have a, a, an experiential knowledge and that experience, experiential knowledge is based on this developed relationship and this relationship undergirding it is this fear of God, this healthy fear of God. And that fear of God exists 
because they recognize that that relationship is something that has been given to them as a grace, that they have been outreached by God, uh, just as we all are. They have been outreached by God. And they recognize that in their sins, in their fallenness, that he has come and offered his love to save us from those sins. And so all of that relates, right? And that's why you'll see that those who have this uh, deep understanding, this experiential knowledge of God, uh, the ones that we call saints, uh, when they speak about themselves, they still speak about themselves as though they're sinners, right? It's not like they leave those things behind. Um, they leave as, as, as many sins as, as, as possible through grace behind. Uh, but they recognize that they are sinners uh, and that what is upholding them is grace and their response to that. And that is that relationship that has developed there. And so they, 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 they recognize that. Um, that there is, uh, you know, it's not an arbitrary one-sided thing that if they work hard, like they're going to the gym, if they work very, very hard at it, then somehow they will build the muscles of knowing God. Um, it's not, it's not one-sided. Uh, one-sided attempts to reach God without God are exactly what it is that we see in the Old Testament when we uh, see an example of something like the Tower of Babel people wanting to reach heaven and elevate themselves through their own knowledge, through their own hands, through their own works, without God, um, and elevating themselves and seeing, look, we're getting closer and closer to these things. You can't muscle your way there. It is something that must be done from God's standpoint and our response to that, because it is a relationship that is being developed here. Again, uh, from the sayings of the Desert Fathers, a brother asked an old man saying, what work ought the soul to do in order to produce fruits of excellence? Remember the, the language that is being used here for many of these experiences and revelations and, and the things that, that we know and hold to be true in our faith uh, are being referred to in the desert as spiritual excellences. So it's, it's being, this brother is asking the old man, what? work ought the soul to do in order to produce fruits of excellence. The old man said to him, in my opinion, the work of the soul is as follows. To live in silence, persistent endurance, self-denial, labor, humility of body, and constant prayer. A man should not consider the shortcomings of other men, but his own lapses. If a man will persist in these things, the soul will, after no great time, make manifest the fruits of spiritual excellence. Um, now, uh, I think when we're young, we have hopes of grandeur that say, okay, this is something that I can very easily put into practice. I'm going to start doing this today. Um, if I put my mind to it, I'll be able to do it. Self-denial, labor, humility of body, constant prayer. You know, I'm going to pick up the Igbeya. I'm going to start doing the Igbeya from, from cover to cover every single day. Uh, and then I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to do morning doxology, and I'm going to do tizbeh at night, I'm going to do all of these things, um, and I'm, you know, I'm going to persist in this, persistent endurance, self-denial, I'm going to, I'm going to be silent, and, and, and it's this uh, very unwise way of doing silence that people can uh, end up practicing when they first hear about this. Uh, you know, I'm not going to speak to anybody. If my parents are going to come and speak to me, no, I'm practicing silence right now. This is something, you know, that's important for me that I'm going to be practicing silence. Uh, or you're in a relationship with somebody else and, and they ask you a question, you know, no, 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 you know, I'm practicing silence. Um, 
and it's sort of this inappropriate way of doing things, um, whether that be uh, something like silence or even uh, something like uh, immersing ourselves in, in, in prayer, um, quote unquote prayer, when we, when we don't have the guidance or the knowledge of what it is that we're doing and kind of just running head first into this. Um, but this is something that you'll come to find is actually rather very challenging to do, to do these things with wisdom, to do these things with discernment, to have the humility of body with discernment um, and labor and self-denial. And that, that line, that the sentence that takes its own sentence unto itself here, which is to not judge someone else, to see somebody else and their mistakes and to not judge them uh, is part of this, is part of what will uh, allow for this fruit to be rendered. Um, but it's important to know that this is by experience and it's not by books alone. Uh, we get to learn about these experiences and, it's, and, and the books are extremely important because especially when we have not built that, uh, that relationship yet, uh, when it's not developed, and I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but there's a, definitely a difference between someone that has a relationship uh, with somebody else that they've known them for two minutes and someone that's known them for 50 years, um, there's still a relationship that's there and that, that other person is still accessible. Um, but the knowledge and the depth of that relationship is different. And so we rely on those people that have uh, developed that relationship and have a consistency of thought as a result of that because they're all interacting with the same person, right? They're all interacting with Christ. Uh, and it's the same Christ, and so when they have these unique but real true experiences, they all confirm one another, um, which is why you don't you know, have people that are in the church that are confirming different dogmatic truths. Uh, there might be uh, differences of opinion in terms of other things that aren't necessarily what, what are firmly dogma, and those are things that we'll be getting into in our series. Um, but we rely on these kinds of experiences because we see, based on that, that we want to know something. Um, we want to know something more uh, beyond where it is that we are in our sort of starting point. And so books are important, but you can't do it by books alone. Um, of our Arsenius, uh, I'm sure many of you guys know, there's, there's uh, two things that most people know about him when they know about Alvar Arsenius. Is it, it is that he practiced silence with discernment, uh, but he was a great practicer of silence. And is the one that said, you know, I've, I've never regretted of something that I haven't said, but many times I've regretted something that I have said. Um, and, and so that, that quote was known about him, but also about his life uh, was that he was the tutor of the sons of the emperor. Um, and so he was in a very high position in the world. Um, he was their, the, the teacher of the, the emperor's sons. Um, and in that position, he has you know, lots of money, nice clothes, access to food and books and learning and education. And, um, and so he is, he is very well equipped from our standpoint, from a secular standpoint, from a worldly standpoint, to be someone that we really sort of view as a, as a, as a high academic. And he leaves that and he goes to the desert. Um, and he, there, there he, he, he works out his salvation. Um, and on one occasion, as it says in the Paradise of the Fathers, on one occasion, Abba Arsenius asks an Egyptian old man about thoughts. So he goes and he's asking him about his thoughts, about the things that he struggles with. <clears throat> Afterwards, another brother said to Abba Arsenius, how is it 
that while you have so much learning, both Greek and Latin, you ask questions this uh, you you ask questions of this villager about thoughts. Of Arsenio said to him, "I am well acquainted with Greek and Latin learning, but I have not yet learned the alphabet of this villager." Right, the language with which he speaks is not the language of you know. Uh, Coptic or Greek or something, you know, whatever it was that they were speaking to one another uh, between him and this, this uh, old Egyptian man. Um, he's not speaking about that language. He's speaking about the language of God, right? This man, he's saying, this man knows God. And his language shows that. The way that he speaks demonstrates the, the profoundness of that uh, experiential knowledge. And so I might know a lot of things from books, I might be able to read a lot of things. Um, and that is a, you know, an important good standpoint. He's not disregarding you know, his own background. He's not disregarding um, the importance and the value of his own learning. Uh, but he sees that that is, is uh, just a tool uh, that should be used to be able to get him to um, this deeper and more profound relationship with Christ. And he recognizes this. And this is what's important for us to know as well, uh, especially for those who uh, teach uh, or those who, you know, even if you're not sitting around and you know, formally teaching, um, you might be sitting around with your friends or your family and, and speaking about all of these kinds of uh, theological issues, all kinds of discussions that come up. Why do you think God is like this or that? Uh, and people just kind of sit back and they, and, you know, they kind of try to come up with, with, with answers uh, based on, on the little that they know. Uh, and you might do that and say, well, you know, I have something that's better and, and more, um, uh, more correct because I've, I've read a lot of books. And because I've read a lot of books, then I know what it is that's real. And if I receive a question, then I can stand firmly and say, no, the, the, you know, in truth, this is this and this is this. And, and, and that's not the correct way to think about things. Um, there's certain things that we can do that about uh, certain dogmatic things. Uh, but then there's lots of things that, you know, we, we don't, uh, especially when it comes to uh, normal everyday occurrences, uh, which are the overwhelming uh, incidents that we have in which we can experience God. Why is it that God allows for whatever? Why did he allow for sickness? Why is he allowing for this time of COVID, for example? Why did he allow this person to die? Uh, why, why anything? Um, and there are times when that is known uh, through people's experience because they've developed that relationship and that experience with God. And there's sometimes that God does not reveal that to them. Um, and so they, they would genuinely be able to come out and say, I don't know. I don't know. And it hasn't been revealed to me. And I can stand by that. And it's such a safe way to go about it because it's based on experience. And it's not just based on books. Um, there is uh, one of the uh, big figures in, in the desert for many reasons in, in the fourth century. His name is Evagrius Ponticus, who's also a very learned man, um, who was in Constantinople and, and found his way through uh, uh, interesting means to, to, to be in, in Egypt. Um, he says this line that, that we have heard over and over again, uh, but we have to understand it in context. If you are a theologian, you will pray truly. And if you pray truly, you are a theologian. This prayer leads to 
knowledge of God, right? Uh, this is what theology really is. Theology isn't just, you know, our modern day understanding of what a theologian is, which is someone that has memorized a lot of books that speak about God. The basis of this, the reality of, of, um, of being a theologian is specifically someone who prays. Um, and he, uh, he elaborates on this in the same work on, the, on his chapters of prayer. He says the state of prayer is one of dispassion, which by virtue of the most intense love transports the intellect that longs for wisdom to the noetic realm. So he's saying, here's this prayer that when it is carried out um, and practiced uh, the way that it's supposed to be practiced and to the depth to which it can be practiced. Um, and that doesn't mean that it has a terminus, right? There's no bottom to that depth. It just continues to, to, to be more and more profound. Um, the state of, of prayer uh, is one of dispassion, which by virtue of the most intense love, this love, this experience that this person has, this love that's based on uh, knowing that, that Christ came to save us from our sins, this love that goads us towards repentance and, and, and allows us to strive to, to struggle against the passions, this intense love transports the intellect that longs for wisdom to the noetic realm, to the realm of mind, to the realm. And when we speak about the noetic realm, you can think about it in terms of heaven or, um, uh, you know, the, the knowledge of God. Um, and, and, and so that's what we have to understand about theology in general. Uh, and when we start speaking about dogmatic and doctrinal issues, uh, again, this is not people just sitting around and trying to come up with things that make sense. Um, m many of these things are not intuitive, uh, and, uh, but they are known by experience. They're known by prayer. They're known by a life of repentance. This is the fruit that is, that is yielded from this. Uh, and so we, we come here to the last slide. This is a, a quote by Father John Romanides, um, who was an, was an Eastern Orthodox priest uh, who reposed a couple of decades ago. Um, a very profound man, but he was speaking about this topic. And he says, <clears throat> correct theology is an expression of the experience of glorification. Correct theology. And mind you, he's a very learned, learned man. He's not someone who's, uh, you know, um, he's not someone that's just kind of sitting around and, and, and doing this kind of in his, in his spare time. Uh, he's a very profound thinker, but he recognizes that correct theology is an expression of the experience of glorification. And glorification is uh, part of that fruit, the spiritual excellences that come about from this relationship with with God. The key to Orthodox theology is experience. <clears throat> Our own theologians stress that they base theology on experience. The fathers have experience or theoria, which is vision, as the sole foundation of their theology. It is experience. And that's, that's what we have to keep in mind, especially when it comes around to um, these topics and why it is that we cannot just treat these topics or um, or the words that have been given to us from the fathers uh, as though they're just equivalent to our own. Um, 
it's not because we esteem them so highly and we, you know, we put them up on our shelves and we think, look, they, you know, they've arrived at this magnificent state and, and everyone rec recognizes that, you know, this is important. Uh, therefore, you know, we, we do this. The reason why we recognize their importance and their values is because we recognize them as authentic people that have experienced God. Um, and while you and I might have experiences of God as well, the depth of this experience, the truth of this experience, uh, the profoundness of that experience um, sees uh, itself. We, we find them in these books and in the lives of the saints uh, and in the lives of the saints that are around us and living around us now. Um, this is how we grow more and more. Uh, and why it is that we rely on on their writings, why it is that we rely on their understanding? It's because they actually know Christ, um, and it's not something you know that they've just kind of put together. I think m most of the time, when we when we speak about God, we take just you know a handful of verses that we may have memorized, or something that may have struck us a few years ago in a sermon that we heard in church, or something like that. And we make that the, the sole fundamental basis of our, our, our relationship with God. Um, but these are people that are steeped in that. Uh, and it's not because they are just, again, uh, very learned men. Um, the, the, the basis of their, of their depth, of their richness, uh, is that they have this experience and the experience has been borne out by this fear of God and the fear of God exists because they want to maintain that relationship of savior, and and one who uh, has been saved and is being saved and will continue to be saved uh, as we say in orthodoxy this relationship uh, ultimately comes down to a lifelong struggle for genuine repentance and if we have that and if we strive towards that then we will get to know christ more and more because that is that is who it is that we're having this relationship with, the Savior, uh, he who saved us from our sins, not just he who saved us from uh, you know, the, the devil, Satan, and the demons, but he who saved me from me, <laughs> and he saved me from, from the things that I struggle against within myself um, because of my, fallen, my fallenness. Uh, and so this is something that, that we should continue to keep in mind moving forward when we're speaking about these, these kinds of things. Uh, and whenever we hear about anything dogmatic or doctrinal, um, that, you know, we don't just get to sit back and say, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like what it is that this father said, so I'm just going to disregard it. He didn't know what he was speaking about. I know what I'm speaking about. Um, if you're going to make a claim like that, you better know what it is that you're talking about. And you better know what it is that you're talking about, either from experience or from an overwhelming understanding and being within that mindset of the fathers in general to be able to come and say, no, this is something that, uh, that could be challenged. Otherwise, if it just doesn't sit well with you because you know, it challenges something within you uh, and it challenges that concept that you developed of, of God three years ago by, by sitting and, and, and reading something in passing or a verse that stood out to you or something at a particular point in your life, uh, and you disregard what it is that's being provided to you. And you say, no, that, you know, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't understand that. Uh, I don't know why it is that the church is offering this. What I know to be true is, and then you start writing a very large post on Facebook to be able to <laughs> explain that. Um, 
know how uh, how important and meaningful these books are uh, and why it is that we rely on them. Uh, again, it's that experience. So God willing, next time we'll be getting into uh, the, what is born out from that experience, um, the, the codification of, of this uh, relationship, what has been given to them and to the fathers as a grace to be able to share with us so that we know about, about Christ more in depth. Um, we'll be getting more and more into that, God willing. Uh, and then we'll, again, we'll fluctuate between that and, uh, and uh, certain things from uh, the desert fathers uh, so that we can kind of gain more of an understanding of the spirituality that has been offered to us by our tradition, both from the desert uh, and from our uh, dogmatic church fathers. Pray for us, pray for, pray for the church, um, and God willing, uh, we'll see each other very soon. Glory be to God forever. Amen.